Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. It's less than four weeks to Christmas, David. Is it that quick or it? Or Hanukkah, I, whatever you're It's hard to keep track of it because it feels like as soon as Easter's over, the Christmas decorations come out. It's just like we roll from one, Pretty from, much. From one holiday into the next. I'm not ready yet. Do you have a Hanukkah bush upstairs? <laughs> <laughs> Not this year. No. Uh, our Christmas tree went up a few weeks ago. The kids love it. So it's um it's a nice time of year. Things things are bu- things are busy for our industry and then we get a break. Yeah, exactly. How long are you gonna well you're not really working, but what yeah. what are we what are your plans? <laughs> just with family, to be honest. Just just hanging out, just relaxing, maybe a bit of time at the beach. Very nice. Enjoying because everyone leaves Sydney. Yeah. Everyone goes. It's That's like true. It does greatest. wind down quite a lot. Yeah. So I, I'm one of these people that hangs around where everyone disappears overseas. Fair so, enough. Uh, well, you just come back from Perth. How was that? It was hot. It was good. It was hot. It was good. Just teaching bonsai over there for a week. Um, body's a bit sore. I know it sounds. <laughs> it's you're like, what do you do? You play with the tree. Well, like a lot of it was woodworking, so carving and right. quite strenuous on the body. So like yesterday. When was it? Was yeah, Mon Sunday not Sunday. I was there from it was like a twelve hour day. Mm. So so you're like the Jewish Mister Miyagi, <laughs> Miyagi Berg. There you go. <laughs> Who do we have with us today? Well, we have former guest, former business. Well, I guess we kind of still are business partners. But Cassandra Smith joined us has joined us once again. We've done pre two previous episodes. I reckon it's three. Is it three? Three. I reckon this is your fourth. You might be up there with like. Most represented guest ever. Been on here more than I have. <laughs> yeah. How are you, Cass? I'm very well. It is episode number four with Inside Aesthetics. Wow. Thanks for having me back. But it's been a while between between. Oh, a long time. It's been yes. a while. Uh, we'll have to. We'll reference the ex or well, the old episodes at the bottom of this description if you guys want to dip yeah. back into what we did with Cass previously. Yeah. Um, wealth of knowledge, which is why we've got you back. We're here for a slightly different spin on, on your knowledge this week. Yeah, well, literally about 15 minutes ago, I was reading the questions downstairs, having mm. a coffee, and we originally planned this to be Cass is obviously the main star of the show. And then I was thinking, actually, why don't we delve into, you know, your mm. previous business partnership and yep. sort of tweak things slightly. So Yeah, well, um, I'm often talking about the fact that you should, at all, if at all possible, surround yourself with people who complement your skill set. Mm. Um, and then got- you found me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, especially in business because it's hard to be good at everything and it's you know, it's always um a good idea to work on your weaknesses, but your weaknesses are always gonna be your weaknesses to a degree and your always your strengths are always gonna be your strengths. So if you can find someone who does things better than what you do in certain areas, it tends to work quite well. So mm. I thought it could be a good episode oh, to talk to. Thanks, talk. Dave. Oh, that's okay. I agree. I think it's important to make sure that you've got people around you that can support what you're great at, which energizes you, but also ensure that you've got backup. So I think having business partners, surrounding yourself with the right people um, with complementary skill sets, but also engaging in conversations with people that may see something from a completely different view will always help your career and always help your, your business going forward. 
Yeah. yeah. So we kind of originally planned this about team building, team mm. motivation, all that kind of stuff. But I'm going to kind of throw in some mm. history lessons about how you yeah. guys met and, mm. and how you worked together as a team, because that was the original team. And then you built Monster Team of about 80, 80 yeah. people really? in the end, yeah. I think. I think it was. I might, it, might, it might have peaked it a bit more than that at one stage, but yeah. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. So, Cass, why don't you fill the listeners in who maybe have joined us since your previous uh, appearances? What What is your background? Where did it all start? And then we can get into how you met David. Sure. Uh, so I started in the industry half my life ago, which is kind of terrifying. That was pointed <laughs> out to me the other day. Half my life ago, I started in aesthetics. Isn't that crazy? Um, but I started first as a beautician and I was literally the person that was paid to get wax off everything in a beauty salon. Um, did everything from your spa treatment straight through to your clinical facials and found a keen interest in working in skin and mentoring other staff as well. So I spent the next probably seven years working between beauty and more clinical work before I finally settled in a franchise in 2012. That's where I met David. So that's quite a long time ago now, 10 years. So yeah. you originally started as the clinic manager and that's I when did, you met David yeah. or did David employ you? Uh, so I walked into the franchise uh, on a very fun day in Canberra, <laughs> I'm from Canberra, uh, called the Multicultural Festival, which is where they shut down the middle of the city and they have lots of different cultures represented by food uh, and music and it's a very fun day. And to be honest, I just walked past the clinic and just said, you know what, maybe it's time for a change. Walked in, introduced myself, and uh, initially uh, applied for a job as a therapist there, providing some laser services. And the manager at the time said, have you ever considered managing and leading a team? And then I think maybe three weeks later, I was starting full-time. And then when did you step onto the scene, David? Well, so I already owned that business. And just to sort of backfill a little bit with, with the history. So when I joined Laser Clinics Australia, I had an opportunity to buy into the first franchise in the ACT, so in Canberra. And there was four business partners involved. So the two founding partners, so we had on Bob Ack a number of times and only just recently talking about the economy and his sort of uh, predictions for what's happening in the world. Um, and his business partner, Alistair, and there was a third, a third part, sorry, a fourth partner. And so that fourth partner lived in Canberra. Obviously, I live in Sydney. Um, one of the things that you'll learn with starting businesses is that they need constant care and attention. And so um, wouldn't ordinarily be a good idea to set up a new business in a different state where you can't <laughs> yeah. get to uh, quickly when things go wrong because inevitably in businesses, things go wrong all the time. So one thing leads to another, that, biz- that fourth business partner that, that lived in Canberra didn't work out and we had to buy her out of the business, which then left a massive issue because I was in Sydney and we had no active partner in, Sid- in, uh, in Canberra. And so the business was, basically it was in a state of, disarray. It wasn't, it was suffering from mismanagement or lack of management. We had staff issues. We had patient issues. It was an absolute, I think the technical term is a shit fight. That's what we call it here in Australia. <laughs> that, that's the technical term. Clusterfuck. Just clusterfuck. It was terrible. So Cassandra walked into the, walked onto the scene at a very fortuitous time um, and had a, well, I think it was probably some of your most um, important developmental um, experiences of your life was dealing with a business that was in a, a real state because it just, it was left without an active partner um, close by and running these businesses remotely was really difficult. So that's, that's kind of how it started. Is that how you remember it too? Yeah. Yeah. I think I called you a couple of weeks in uh, to let you know that I no longer had a key or didn't have a key to some cabinets and whatnot. And I remember introducing myself 
Uh, but that would have been December 2012, I think. What were your first impressions of each other? Start with David to Cass. Oh, God, I can't even remember what my first impression was, to be <laughs> honest with you. I think I was just thankful to have someone that was there that seemed competent, that was willing to work hard. Um, nothing was really an issue. Um, very positive energy. Um, but that's sort of the boast that I, honestly, that's, it's, you know, we're going back 10 years. I can't remember what I did yesterday sometimes. <laughs> so 10 years ago. I remember making your bet when we first uh-huh. met each other. Um, so we hadn't had much to talk to each other about really other than um, end of day reporting, those sort of things, because my job really was to go in, knuckle it and get it done. Um, and then I think maybe the first or second time I had met you, uh, or at least called you, I actually blew off a laser. <laughs> oh, <yes>. so, <laughs> so I worked in IPL before I worked in laser and with an IPL machine to cool it down, you do the fans, you do the air circulation, but you can also put cold water into the back of those machines. You don't do that with a laser. I learned the very hard way and through David's wallet at this time uh, that if you do that with a laser, you blow it up. So I think my second or third conversation with you was, hello, uh, it's Cassandra. Uh, I work at Laser Clinics, the one you own. (laughs) (laughs) Just so you know, I've blown up a machine, but I have had enough, I guess, forward thinking to make sure that it's definitely dead and it is definitely dead. So you don't need to worry about that. Uh, and you said to me, well, I think you've done the worst thing you could possibly do. So now it's only up from here. Wow. I was like, okay, <laughs> perfect. Well, let's say, well, I said, look, you know, I'll just keep working hard. I'll double your weekly uh, turnover in three months. And if I do, I want a good Christmas bonus. And here we are. Well, there you go. Already negotiating You're turning and, a negative and hustling into a positive from, oh, yeah. from minute one. <laughs> Ultimate negotiator. So you started as a therapist, made your way to manager, and then what was the chronology of actually kind of deciding, actually, I want to Mm. become a a co-owner of this business? Um, I think it was pretty clear very uh, early on that I was treating that business like my own anyway. And because of the relationship that David and I had formed quite quickly, we trusted each other and an opportunity came up to purchase a clinic together. So we made the decision to build the second clinic whilst also... um, maintaining and building the first clinic as well. So that was probably almost two years in to working with that franchise that we then decided to do an additional clinic, which brought our team from an original, I think, 14 members to maybe 30. So that was that was fun. But for the first probably year and a half of the first business, I mainly focused on getting a good foundation going and getting consistency planted because I think once you're working on multi-sites or have big goals for expansion or new treatment modalities, those sort of things, you need to make sure that first layer is really solid. And that's what we focused on for the first 18 months so that when we did move to our second clinic and then eventually eight years later, our third, it was simply replicating those steps rather than starting from scratch. Mm. What was... Um you were here in Sydney, David, oh. and you're kind of thinking, okay, there's this crazy person who blows up lasers <laughs> looking after my clinic. How did, how did you sort of identify each other's sort of pros and cons or, or strengths and weaknesses? What, or should I say, what is David's strength and what is Cass's strength and, and, and weaknesses? Oh, do, you want, do you want to go, Cass? I mean, I-, <laughs> <laughs> I think the strength for both of us is we bring the best out of each other. So I think that way the weakness is kind of not necessarily absorbed, but it is a very, very lucky relationship in that the things that I think I'm quite great at and not something that David naturally would gravitate to and vice versa. Um, In the beginning, David took a really heavy um, role model sense for me in, um, I guess, stepping into leadership 
um, but also money. I, I started a business and just knew how to work really hard. Um, and then in working with with David, helped me understand money and how the business works in the back end, which is something that I didn't have any access to in terms of education. I knew how to provide the service and I knew how to make sure we had clients coming back and back and back. Uh, but I couldn't necessarily understand at the end of the day how that profit and loss, how a balance sheet was going, those sort of things. That's something we've yeah. pretty much highlighted over the past couple of weeks, yeah. especially with our, our, our live Zoom as yeah. well. Yeah, I, th- I think from my perspective, um, you know, what you're saying is right, Cassandra. Um, I'm more of a big picture thinker, so looking at things at a macro scale. So looking at a business from 100 feet above the air, um, pretty good at looking into the future, predicting issues that might come up <clears throat> further down the track, um, risk mitigation, the financial back end, um, I guess strategic big picture thinking. Um, and I think Cassandra is very like, she's one of the best people I've ever come across in terms of operational day-to-day um, managing of a business. So dealing with large groups of people, training, culture building, conflict resolution, maximizing retail sale opportunities within how your front your front of house is set up and how to script certain things to be able to communicate effectively with patients without coming across as pushy or salesy. Um, and so I think that's really where our, our strengths and weaknesses sort of complement each other because day-to-day operational detail stuff, whilst I can do it, it's not my, my forte. Um, and I think that Cassandra does that really well. She's, she's great at, at building cultures and training people at scale. Um, and it's something we had to do with, with so many staff eventually. Um, it's a very valuable skill set. So it, it worked really well because while I was looking into the future and looking at the overall health of the business and coming up with strategies to deal with itch- issues that were coming, um, Cassandra was just able to just run the business on a day-to-day basis and deal with all of the issues that were popping up. So I think it worked quite well from my perspective, you know, and, and with any business relationship, you don't always see eye to eye on things. You've got differing opinions. You know, my personality type can sometimes be a little bit abrasive, which I've tried to soften over the years. No. Because, no. <laughs> Whereas Kachandra is more of a, you know, a, I guess a lot softer in that, in that, in that respect, <laughs> a lot more fluffy, a lot more sort of, you know, yeah. So. You mean <laughs> yeah. she's just nice? Yeah. yeah, she's just nice and I'm not. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thanks, thanks. Actually, that yeah. dynamic sounds very similar to how we run the podcast, to be honest. <laughs> no, I mean, joking aside, like you, you are the overseer, um, y- you know, you're, you're good at the business side, negotiating, whatever, whereas it's me sort of doing the day-to-day kind of, you know. Detailed stuff. Detailed stuff. Yeah. And that's fine. You know, if you identify that with your business partner, whoever you choose, or if you're a listener and you're kind of working your team, I think what you're saying is identify what people's core skills are and don't sort of expect things that people can't do. Yeah. And that's important in, in team building. a lot of time then as well. Like if you have a particular skill set and you can do this quite naturally and reproduce this work over and over again, it requires very little little energy because you're just doing what feels natural to you and what you're good at. And I'm not saying that if you do have weaknesses that you shouldn't be working on them or trying to improve, but it's also understanding what your spend is for that day. When you're running a business, whether it's one, two or 10 staff, whether it's one, two or 10 locations, it means that you've only got a certain amount of energy per day and a certain amount of, I guess, you know, thinking tank, right? So if you're doing lots and lots of different things that you're not necessarily good at and you're struggling through, the time would be better spent, you know, fostering those relationships around you to grab assistance in those sort of areas and slowly bit by bit become more knowledgeable in that area rather than A, putting way too much pressure on yourself and you're doing absolutely everything and maybe 
20% great? Or what if you outsource a little or ask for help a little and put 100% of that energy to things that you're good at and that will allow your business to scale while surrounding yourself with the right people. Mm. So if I can ask both of you, I'll start with David. So you, you buy this clinic, yeah. it's a shit show, as you put it. <laughs> From a macro level, and then we'll zoom into the detailed level, what what were the actual main problems that you identified? Where do we start? Um, the issue was there wasn't any day-to-day oversight with the business. And when you're running large teams, um, particularly in this industry, there needs to be a constant a constant presence there, a constant managerial presence, someone that can lead from the front, that can pick up on all of the little detail issues that happen on, on a day-to-day basis. So these businesses are quite quite busy. Some of them would see, you know, upward of 100 patients a day. You could have, you know, up to 10 therapists working in a, in a single clinic. So the, num- the amount of moving parts that are happening in this business is, is astronomical. The amount of phone calls, email inquiries, you know, inevitably when you're seeing that many patients, you're going to have complaints, you're going to have adverse events that pop up. And so I think that the business is just really suffering from just no one there on that daily basis, managing all the little micro issues that pop up. And so when those micro issues compound over time, what was small insignificant issues stick together and create something that's a lot more significant in the issue, in the, in the business. So when Cassandra stepped in, there was all these cultural issues within the team because you've got <laughs> you know, staff fighting with each other. You don't have leadership. When you don't have a strong leadership um, presence in a business, it doesn't make staff, uh, doesn't make staff feel safe. It's, it, it allows little, little things that could be nipped in the bud by someone in a managerial position or a leadership position to manifest into much bigger issues. Mm-hmm. And then once you start getting cultural issues between your team members, that then starts permeating across to your injectors in your business because, you know, they've almost running their businesses with inside your business. Then that becomes an issue with uh, patients. And so if patients don't feel like they're getting the right treatment, they can pick up on these energies within the business, then the injectors start to complain because it starts to impact on them. So it's just basically, as I've said in previous episodes, with an economy, everything's connected. It's the same concept within a business on on a sort of a micro level. Everything's connected to each other. So if you've got cultural issues with staff, it it can pretty quickly spread like it's sort of a cancerous or tumour, cancerous growth and infect your whole business. And, cult- and cultures, and one of these things that, that Cass is really, is really brilliant at is developing or, or, or cultivating a great culture within a business. And so we'll talk about that in more detail. But once you've lost that culture within a business, it's very difficult to regain it because it's almost like everyone's been infected um, with a way of thinking um, or a certain idea about what it is to come and work within a business. And so once that's lost, um, it's pretty difficult to claw back. Would you agree, Cass? Yeah, I think so. And I think that... Um when we first started with that that first franchise, you're right, there wasn't anyone in the day-to-day, but I think more importantly, there was just no routine. So you were just turning up to work and getting smacked in the face by it, not necessarily knowing what was happening. So it was, there was a lot of reactive customer service, a lot of reactive uh, client care, and also, uh, I guess, also even little tiny things like how you bring a client through, how you're meeting and greeting, how your team are uh, set up for their work day. There wasn't a roster, those little things. So it's looking through the tiny things that make a big deal in the long run and also looking at the big picture stuff as well. One of the things I did, which um, I now do with every business that I, that I assist, is I actually sat down as a client because I think a lot of the time, whether you're an injector, whether you're a skin therapist, et cetera, et cetera, 
your brain immediately goes to what does this client need? How do I help them? How do I get there? But also, am I sterile? Am I a safe work field? How's everything? I guess going in my clinic room, but they've forgotten that when a client sits down, they're looking under the bed and there's dust. They forgot that when I remember the first time I met you, Cass, you, you, I can't remember what you said. Hi, I'm Cass. I'm David's business partner. I'm visiting, whatever. You came in my room because I was on a break and you said, one of the things that I do to get in the patient's headspace is to lie on the bed and have a look at the ceiling and the yeah. floor. And, and, and you literally sort of, you know, taught me that perspective. And it was really helpful because I think we identified there was like a loose, I don't know, wire from the speaker. And yeah. There's a bit of dust in the corner. That no. you focus on your client. So I think that those little tiny tricks, it's not always big things that you have to implement to create big change. It's also the tiny things that you just hone in and just polish over and continuously give that a bit of love and it becomes part of your daily routine. And I think that sitting down and being your client, laying on the bed, remembering that just because everything looks normal to you doesn't mean it's not intimidating to a client as well. A lot of feedback we get, especially in the aesthetic space, is a lot of injectors like to lay out their workspace and have all their their needles and everything out in a row. That's great, but is that very intimidating to someone who's quite needle phobic? So let's look at making that less aggressive. So it's the tiny sort of things that make a massive difference, especially in the aesthetic space. And I think it comes down to obviously the big things, but it's the tiny things. Sitting in your your clinic in every area your client is going to be standing or sitting is a really important thing to do because you start to see your business through somebody else's eyes. It's not just as a business owner, the service you provide is only extended to your hands conducting that treatment. It's an extension of everything. It's how you look. It's how you greet people. It's how you word, you know, how you're going to consult the client, those sort of things. Every little thing is an extension of professionalism. And I think that it's important to have a look at that on a 360 view rather than just looking at it straight as this is my treatment space. This is my treatment room. This is my client when it's not necessarily the best way to look at building and maintaining your business, but also improving your your policies and procedures as well. Yeah. So you guys, dynamic duo, sort of owning and managing, and then you eventually co-owning as well. So how quickly can you implement change? I mean, I, you know, let, let's, let's say you bought it, I don't know, in 2012. Do you give yourself three months before you make any radical changes to sort of observe? I've never understood that, that, game plan i hear this all the time right. it's like okay so we'll do there's 10 things we want to implement but we've got to get it done in two weeks it's absolutely not that you just need a plan as to where you see the future of this business and work your way back there is no timeline it's just about effort and spend so sometimes you need intensity in how you're approaching your problem and sometimes you just need consistency and sometimes that consistency opportunity only comes up once every few months So it's just working on what your priorities are, keeping a good line of sight over those priorities and working your steps back. So if you go, okay, this is where I see my business in six months, 12 months, where do I need to build those steps in? And then start implementing them every day. You don't need to go into a business and shake everything down and be super aggressive. You actually need to understand what your business needs before you start operating any sort of change. So if you're taking over an existing business, which we have before, if you're cleaning up an existing business, which we have before, and then when we built a clinic and started from scratch, all those business priorities, whilst they had the same goals, needed to be implemented differently. There is no timeline to change. It's just working and responding to what that business needs. Mm. I was going to say, just to pivot, so when you joined the clinic that I used to work at, that wasn't in the greatest shape either. 
So how how did you approach that one? Did you well? I mean, similar to what Cass said. I mean, I, I think that under, identifying what the issues are, and then for me, it's putting them in order of priority. So which ones are the most important? Which are the ones that are going to make the greatest impact, or which are the ones that are most urgent that need to be addressed? So, for example, if you've got compliance issues in a, in a business. For me, that's something that's fairly critical that needs to be addressed <clears throat> straight away. It's important to remember as well that when you're stepping into a business or you're looking to implement change, especially significant change, there's only so much change that people, all people, can deal with at one at, at, at a certain point in time. Um, it needs to be it needs to be staged. If you go into a business and start making a number of radical changes at the same time, it can cause a lot of people to feel very unsafe. Yeah. Um, and quite scared about their security of their job. It, it's, it's, it's a natural human sort of trait to not deal with massive amounts of change quickly. So it's almost, as Cass said, creating a list of the things that need to be done and then prioritising which are the ones that are the most business critical, which are the ones that are going to make the biggest difference. It's a good opportunity to, to talk to your staff. So if they were to take over the business in 24 hours, what's something they would immediately change and what are two goals they would have in the first three to six months, say, of, of working in this business? Because it's not necessarily, you can't assume that you're the best person for the job every day of the week. It could also be that a therapist that's worked with you for six weeks might have noticed something from her positioning in the clinic that could be improved. And that tiny little change can make a massive difference operationally. So I think it's important too when you're rather going into a business to create change, whether you are buying it as an established business or whether you're just looking to tweak a few things in your core business, having a chat to the team that work with you every day is really important because they will see things that make a completely uh, I guess, different perspective on things. To give you an example, we were using a booking system that wasn't necessarily as great as it could be um, and we'd identified a few things that meant that every single transaction we were doing was adding a, an additional 40 seconds on. Now, 40 seconds doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're seeing 120 patients that day, that's a long time and it's also a consistent feedback issue for the team that every time they have to complete that task and they've told you this does not work for us or it doesn't create the best client experience, you're solidifying again and again and again that you don't have the same priorities they do because you're making them do that 40-second task every single client. So cleaning up those little things and working with your team is really important because success is based on the team's health, the clinic's health, the salon's health. It's not necessarily how much money is coming in. And if you do these sort of things comfortably and consistently, they become second knowledge. So then you are seeing your quality of care the outcomes that you're getting for your clients, how your staff actually feel working with you and for you, but also remembering that once we clean these little things up, they become easier. They're no longer active decisions you need to make, so you're not getting that decision fatigue at the end of the day. So that structure is really important. And, again, working with your team to ensure that you're actually fighting the right battles and working on it together. Mm. I might just uh, take one of the things you said a little bit and expand. You, you spoke about, um, you know, that 40-second uh, delay or extra time yeah. that you had with bookings. And, and you could extend extend that out to not only your staff but your patients, and I'd like to define them as friction points. Um, so the more friction points you have in your business, the more difficult people are going to find it to interact or the more, more, frustrating, more frustrated they're going to feel interacting with your business. So for an example could be how do people book in with Dr. Jake? Um, do you have an easy booking system? Does this system work? How fast is the process? Um, how difficult is it? How many steps are involved when they come into your business? Are you giving them like reams of paper to read through and sign? And that same thing happens with your staff. If you've got systems and processes that are difficult, that are cumbersome, that are time consuming, it starts to frustrate 
people. It starts to make them not enjoy what they're doing. It slows down your processes. So when you're looking at your business, for me, and especially I'm talking to consulting clients now, is understanding how their whole how their whole process works and are there friction points that are making it annoying for their staff and their patients because as we're all discovering this this industry is is consolidating and just to you know recap on what you know consolidation means um, it's starting to mature things are starting to slow down we've got supply meeting demand there's more options for patients which means that if you want to attract patients they're going to ha- they, you're going to need to do something different you're going to need to offer something more or easier in terms of uh, you know, interacting with a business than your competitors are. So looking for those opportunities to make everything easier and smoother and more intuitive is something that's really important for not only for your your patients, but also for the people working within your business. Yeah, totally. Something I see quite often, actually, you go to someone's Instagram page and injector, and yeah. it's not clear where in the world they are mm-hmm. or, or what city they are. You don't know how to book with them. And immediately... <laughs> If you're a patient, I guess, you're kind of like, oh, it's too difficult. I'll go to the next yeah, one. Yeah, next, you know, next one on the so Google list. So just make yeah. it easy at the top of your website. You need yeah. a, book, a book now button or yeah. whatever. We've only got people's attention for a very short space of time. I don't know what the statistics are at the moment, but it's it's not a lot. And everything's so fast-paced and everyone's got so many options. You know, if you don't give people what they want immediately, they're just going back to the Google search. Yeah. Um, or whatever, and, and going to the next the next person. People have got the patience of a fly, yeah, to be honest. Very, very low... Um, very low tolerance levels for things. Including me. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, you just got to put, as Cass said, you just got to put yourself in the patient's position because we can become very complacent with our businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And we're no longer doing something that nobody else does. Yeah. You know, like back in early days, we weren't doing, we we had a business um, in Canberra, Laser Clinic Strength First franchise. We had an injector come one Monday per month and that was enough. So you're looking at it going, okay, what can I do at this small level to try and reproduce it? But also thinking about now, now every single person has very easy access to cosmetic services and we're not necessarily offering services that are different. So what what is the only thing we can really differentiate ourselves by? It's the client experience. And that does start from how you're scrolling through someone's feed, how they're answering the phone how you walk into the business, how you feel in the business, because it's all about now that client experience, not necessarily the physical uh, treatment that you're providing. Yeah. Can I ask you both, when you inherited your clinic the first time, yeah. David, what, what was the team like? Did you notice uh, immediate cultural or, or team dynamic problems or did that evolve over time? Is this the, the one that the I The Canberra one. Well, I built, I built that from scratch. Right, okay. Yeah, so, but it was built with, a person who was there managing on a daily basis. So I didn't have a lot to do with the day-to-day operational side of things. Um, so in terms of what it was like at that point, I honestly, I honestly couldn't, can't remember or I'd be lying to you if I told you, <laughs> but I can tell you when we got to the point of sort of meltdown, it was, it was pretty toxic. I mean, I think we had one situation, we found a staff member hiding in a cupboard. Yeah. Yeah. Tell so, us that story yeah. again. You've said it once on the podcast yeah. and I still couldn't believe it. So tell, tell us about oh, that. Oh, well, this is the thing when you don't have someone who's holding people accountable for their time in your business. Um, inevitably, there'll be a percentage of people, especially people that are younger. You know, we've all been young and, and taken the piss. Um, if you don't have someone who's there overseeing um, as an, or, you know, a presence of authority to a certain extent without, you know, being overly, you know, aggressive or, or you know, um, intimidating to people, but people do need some accountability. And so um, we had just a free-for-all in this business. And so there was a therapist that went miss- missing one day for a couple of hours. No one knew where she was. And so we were like almost to the point where we were going to, you know, call her parents and or call the police and go, this she's just gone missing. We don't know where she is. 
And then um, a therapist just walked in to grab something from a cupboard and there was someone in there. She was, she was just, <laughs> she was in there on a phone. She'd been in there for two hours. She just decided that she'd had enough, enough, <laughs> enough, enough for the day and just decided to what check out. What was her reaction? What did she say? It was very nonchalant. That was one of the most surprising. Oh, oh hi, I'm yeah. just in. I'm yeah, I'm just, just, in chill, just chilling out like a weirdo in the cupboard. Yeah, so, yeah. Was that but immediate? that also tells you that if you had someone there, that person would be able to identify this this particular therapist is not overly engaged, right? She's yeah. hiding in a cupboard yeah. on her phone. So what does she need? Because just as much as you've employed them, they've also yeah. chosen to work for you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, she needs a new job. But what if we could create an environment with her where she felt motivated every day to go to work, that she felt safe because the procedures and policies were there to make sure she had structure and support? And what if we could build her confidence to a point where she's not hiding in a cupboard, she's at front desk, and she's talking through all the things that we offer as as a business and she's happy to come to work yeah. because that's really a successful business. Yes, it's funny to think about, you know, this, this poor therapist sitting in a cupboard, but in the same sense, I look at it and go, what an opportunity creates some change. And when I first started with that business, I think there was four or five staff members and they all had great potential. It's just they had no one to steer the ship, but they also had no one, I guess, who day to day, yes, we talk about being an authority, um, I guess, position and leadership and management, but it's also care. When people feel cared for, they're far more likely to engage positively with that business, with that brand, with that person being yourself in that leadership position. So I think it's important to acknowledge that, yes, we didn't necessarily have a great culture to start with, but we had people who wanted to learn, who wanted to, I guess, make a difference. And everyone that gets into the aesthetics business is someone that has that goal as well. Whether you're a cosmetic injector, whether or not you're doing teeth gems and spray tans, you want to create positive change for someone. And as employers of people like that, we need to be aware that that's likely to be a priority and a motivating factor in a lot of people that choose this sort of an industry as a job. It's a good, it's a good point, actually. I, I, from an injector's perspective, and you know, speak to hundreds of injectors, and David, you've probably had this chat with injectors, they often, you know, they start a job, they're all keen and happy, they're injecting, and then at some point, they sort of lose motivation. They get a bit bored. They start looking over their shoulder at new opportunities. So how do you foster that um, mm. hunger? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, it's identifying what people's motivations are. And so a lot of that just starts with a, with a conversation, getting to know the person that you're working with um, and get, letting them get to know you as well. And it, it's it's one of these things, everyone needs to find their own their own style of management. Like the way that I manage people will be very different to the way that Cassandra manages people. Um, but for me, it was always about getting to know people on a more personal level um, to the point where, you know, I understood what their dreams and aspirations were, I understood what their responsibilities were outside of work, what their commitments were, what they liked, what they didn't like, what their boundaries were. Um, the way that they like to be communicated with. And that's something as well as being able to adapt your communication style because different people respond to different things. So for me as a, as a personality type um, that dislikes the bottom line, I want to know when, why, who, how, you know, I want to know the bottom line immediately. I don't need all the fluff. That's just my personality type. Um, whereas other people need, it's more about feelings. It's a very um, important the language that you use that, you know, soft emotive words, um, you, and it's something that you you just learn. Um, I think it's almost subconscious. You start to adapt your communication style because, um, as we've spoken about on the, on the podcast previously, if you're not talking to someone in a way that resonates with them, it doesn't matter what you're saying. It won't sink in. It's almost like you could be speaking different languages. Um, and so that's something that I've learned over the years is how to adapt my communication style because I'm not by nature a very warm, fluffy person. Um you don't, you, don't, you don't look shocked. 
<laughs> Not really, no. Yeah. Um, so, but, you know. I remember an email instruction sent me about fluffy versus not fluffy. I remember sending you a massive email. And you wrote back, too long, didn't read, send me the dot points. I'm like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's just the way we communicate. I am more of a fluffy person. I, I am more feels when it comes to building relationships, whereas you are definitely more, more factual. But, you know, just going back to your point about motivation, everybody is different. And weirdly enough, this is advice I give to everyone. And they always look at me like I'm crazy when I first say it. But have you read the book or done the quiz, The Five Love Languages? No. I really recommend you do it. You can just do it online. It takes 20 minutes. It's called The Five Love Languages. And it talks to you and... I suppose it it speaks to how you receive love, which then, you know, a branch of that is feedback. So let's say you have someone who really values words of affirmation and they're really, they really, they need that gold star. If you're not giving them that gold star, but you're writing an email saying, um, you know, I enjoyed your presentation on XYZ this morning and just dot point, they'll, they'll fluff out, right? And they'll have, they'll have a heart attack. That's not how they want to receive that information. And you'll lose them to this spiral of what's going on, what's going on. But if you knew that by turning up to their desk, giving them a coffee because you remembered their order and saying, do you know what? Loved your presentation this morning. Thanks so much for including me. That makes that person's day. It's the same as you could throw $100 at someone or simply say, I really appreciate you. It's actually worth very similar to most people. You, David, will, will prefer the $100. Man, <laughs> I was going to say, I'll one. take the coffee, the $100 and a cuddle. <laughs> I'll take it all. <laughs> yeah, different things motivate different people. And, and when you know how they need to be spoken to and what they need to be engaged, it makes your job a lot easier as well. And at the risk of sounding like an absolute psychopath, by the time I'd left my last business, we had three clinics and I think uh, maybe 65, 68 staff in Canberra, I had an Excel spreadsheet with a tab on every single person because my job is not necessarily to run a clinic. It's to motivate and lead people to be the best they possibly can in the environment that I'm providing. So I had a tab on exactly how people need to hear things or what what are a couple of things out there that have nothing to do with work because you're leading or managing their career. It's not necessarily leading and managing their job in your clinic because the best version of them is the best outcome for you as well. And just to sort of tie this story, Jake, just to tie this back and, and for those that are wondering, you know, what's the relevance to me with, the, with this conversation? I don't have a huge team of therapists, but um, most people, especially the people I'm talking to from a business consulting perspective, are looking to make changes in their business that will allow them to make passive income or be able to create a business they can eventually sell. So whilst there's nothing wrong with being a one-man show and having your own business and doing very well, the limitations on that are that the buck stops with you once you've stopped working, that's it. If you go on holidays, there's no income being generated. So a lot of people out there are looking, whether you're just a single op- a single injector somewhere, you're looking to bring on another injector potentially, or you're looking to create a business where you have more staff working and you can take more of a back seat. All of this information is relevant um, because when you are looking to set up a business that you A, want to sell or B, want to be able to have it generating income when you're not there, you're going to need other people in your business to do that. Otherwise, everything's on you. So this information is relevant to anyone out there who's looking to take more of a passive role in their business or looking to set it up for an eventual sale. You need to have other people to do that. It's very difficult to sell a business or to generate income when you're doing everything because there's so much risk. The way I see it as well is that you know, if you are an injector working with, I don't know, one other therapist and Mm. it's a tiny little team or even yourself – it's important to I, maybe understand your own motivations. I think a lot of people maybe don't. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. They just go to work and inject yeah. and, and, and that's it. And they might get frustrated with that because they don't even know what they want. Yeah. So maybe sitting down and actually working out what it is that your personality needs would be useful. But also, you know, maybe in a smaller team, these interpersonal clashes can be much more um, problematic than if if you're in a big team and yeah. it's all a bit diluted. Yeah. So I should think it's highly relevant even yeah. if you're in a tiny little team. Yeah. And as you mentioned as well, you know, even finding people that, it's like building a like you know, you're like soccer, right? We World Cups on at the moment. Let's let's football. Sorry, let, let's let's give a football <laughs> reference. It's like you're building a team, yeah. And different people in your team have different skill sets. You can't have everyone being a striker. Not everyone can be the goalie. And so it's about building a team where you've got different strengths that complement each other. You might have someone that's a great salesperson. They're really bubbly with people, but they're shit on admin, or they're they're really bad with you know the back end side of things. So you need people in your team that can pick up that slack or who offer that different that different energy to the patients and different responsibilities within the clinic. What do you think, Cass? Yeah, I think it's really important. And I think also whether you are a one-man show or a team of 100, you will have different motivations and you will at some point get stuck in that feedback loop of to be successful, I need to look like this, I need to see this many patients per day, billing this much, have this sort of account, all those sort of things. But defining what success looks like to you is most important because you can get trapped in the just consistently running and running and running and running and running towards a goal, but not necessarily identifying with it, which is something that I really struggled with when I first started in industry is you go, okay, well, if success looks like this, then I need to do this, this, and this, but it wasn't actually till I started managing myself that I think that I started doing a lot better and getting another person's eyes on your business and how you're looking at what your success looks like is, is is important as well. For some people, they are motivated by a monetary result. Other, it might be time off. Others, it might be acts of service, those sort of things. But when we talk about building a business and understanding the longevity and care of that business, sometimes we put ourselves last. And I think that's why it's important to work with other people, whether it is someone looking through your business as a coach in one of those sort of positions or whether you're looking at a financial planner, those sort of things. It's getting somebody else's eyes in your business to support it because success doesn't look like, you know, a a team of 100 to someone. It might be they want to go to work, have a super fulfilling role within their business, lead and manage maybe one or two people, or maybe they just want to make sure their clients get the best possible service, the best response there and outcomes for their treatments. Maybe that's what success looks like for them. So it's not pushing yourself in a position that you don't necessarily need to be in, but having that, I guess, future you look and going, okay, if if this is what I want in a year, again, let's work our way back, surround ourselves with the right people and give ourselves opportunities to do well healthily rather than just running and running and running in a particular task. Here's a question. Mm. Can you maybe give us a success story of how you've identified, you know, that personality and motivation of an injector versus maybe someone who you didn't as an injector. Yeah. So you mean in terms of identified someone to work with in the long term? Yeah. And to sort of, you know, grow, grow their uh, daily income, make them successful. They've, they've gone up the ladder or whatever versus someone where it just didn't work. Mm. We've had probably more that it didn't work than it did. (laughs) did What would you say this did the, the, ratio would be of success stories. I think the ones that we got right are brilliant yeah. and I will always be proud of the team that we built, especially our team of injectors. Um, but I do believe that as I guess someone in a position of leadership, managing injectors is completely different for me than managing a team of therapists. And I think that 
the injectors in the business that we'd set up um, were led by mass and led by as many clients as possible. And towards the end of our relationship with that team, we actually started focusing more on quality interactions, not necessarily a 20-minute injectables appointment. It was talking them through what does best service look like? What does best health outcome look like for that particular person? So managing an injector versus managing a therapist may have a lot of, I suppose, similar traits, but you do have to manage them completely differently. And one thing I found that when we talk about injectors that maybe didn't work, it's also not necessarily they wouldn't be thriving elsewhere. It's just that our, I guess, business type wasn't well suited for them. So some people need to do a one-room clinic and they need to have their own clients and have whatever time they need. But the business that we worked in, we were set with quite a few controls, which meant that we couldn't pull a lot of change levers. Now in working consulting with injectors and people in the aesthetic space, we're looking at cleaning up how we're working and making sure that it's something that we can foster healthily for a long time rather than make a lot of money, let's be honest. But be really burnt out within a few months. It's more about quality of career, quality of outcomes for your client and experience for your client and making sure that you're aligned in how you're motivated. Yeah. I've I've heard of some people working with business coaches where they, I don't know how it works, they color type them or they they type them into a shape and you're either a a circle or you're a squiggle. Do you know about that? Yeah. Yeah. I've I've done a lot of those those personal development things. How does that work? And like, how does it work in, in, in reality once you've identified you're a squiggle or whatever? <laughs> I think, yeah. You, I'm a squiggle just for the record. You're I think. definitely a squiggle. I've done the squiggle and the triangle. You're a double squiggle. Double, yes. Um, but once you've identified what that person needs, it's your job to provide them a, a I guess, opportunity and environment for them to be successful because it's not just someone coming into your business and injecting every client and they're on the way. It's also making sure you're holding up your end of the deal as well. Um, For me, it was about creating relationships with my team, whether it was my casual employee who just finished beauty school or right through to one of my most successful injectors, is they know that you work hard for them and they're going to work hard with you as well. So I think for when we talk about healthy careers, a healthy career is something that you can maintain long-term that gives you more of, I guess, um, you know, that that feel-good feeling. I'm doing something that I enjoy, I'm good at it, and I want to keep doing it. I don't necessarily believe that you can put someone in a shape or a colour box, but I do think that communication is key and what motivates one person won't motivate another, but also how you deliver that information needs to be different for each person. If you have 50 staff members, you need to be communicating that 50 different ways. And I think that's something that a lot of people get quite caught up in is how do I actually communicate with my team to create the change that I need? Because there's no point sending out an email if your team is sending emails to each other. There's no point doing team meetings when people are time poor. How do I communicate with my team to make sure we get the best outcome, but also the least amount of time spend from an operational position? I think one of the things that that I learned um, was how important the recruitment process is um, because you can can get a lot of insights into what that person's going to be like to work with um, if you understand how to recruit properly. And, you know, whilst people can fake interviews, and that's why I've sort of always shied away from the formal interview process. It's more about getting to know this person um, as an individual because skill set can be taught to a certain degree. Um, you can give someone more training, you can give them more education, but you can't fundamentally change who someone is as a person. Yeah. You know, do they have the right ethics? Um, do they have the right motivations? Is there a sense of humility there? Are they actually hungry? Why do they want to work with you identifying what their why is? And does it 
line up with what your with what yours are. So I think that just my biggest lesson was spend more time. It's almost like that that you know fire slowly, fire fast. If someone is the wrong person and you've identified that, you need to remove them from your business as quickly as possible. Um, but just be, but you know, conversely, be more considered when you're bringing people into the business. And I think it, the big thing for me was getting to know people on a more personal level. Um, taking them outside of the clinic, having a coffee, sitting down for you know half an hour, an hour, and getting to know that person, and that you can't you can't sort of mimic that with asking people scripted questions because, and then they're just putting on a performance, yeah. then they're just acting, and people are very good at understanding how to fake things, or they get very nervous and they're not themselves. Correct. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, um, for for me, that the traits were people that were humble. They had responsibilities outside of work. They had a um, a history of spending reasonable amounts of time in, in previous in previous jobs. They get good references. You know, they've got responsibilities that are um, ensuring that there's a level of commitment from their end to be successful because if it all goes pear-shaped, there's, there's consequences to that. So just understanding what makes that person tick, um, getting a feel for their personality type and seeing how that's going to gel with you, um, with your patients, with other people within your team. So sometimes it's not even... The, high, the most highly skilled person, it's someone that's going to gel within that team and continue to perpetuate the right culture um, is also important. Well, here's a question. If you're not the fluffy guy and Cass is the fluffy person, <laughs> yeah. it, I mean, joking aside, do you think she would be better suited for that intro sort of interview process or, Potentially. or not? I mean, I've learned to fake it over the years. Like, it's not even faking. I've just learned to be able to adapt my communication style, but it doesn't come naturally to me. But yeah, potentially, yeah, Cass would be, depending on the type of person she's interviewing. If I'm talking to someone that's potentially more, um, you know, a, a D-type personality or more analytical and fact-based, that might be something that's advantageous to me. Yeah. Um, so I think it could depend on the personality type. But generally, with the people that you are dealing with, Cass, like the, thera the therapist's mind tended to be a little more um, you know, fluffy a little more towards your communication style than me. Oh, not not always, but yeah. Communication is key. And like I know everybody says that in this sort of an area, but communication is key. And I think making sure that the interview is set up for them to win. I think it's a weird concept to tell people, but you need to set that interview up for that person to win. It's not about them proving themselves and throwing themselves over hot coals. It's making sure you're the right relationship too. Because for the most part, if you're hiring someone for, say, 38 to 40 hour a week, you're going to spend more time with them than you will most people that are really important in your life, but they have nothing to do with work. So when I interview anyone, I always try and keep it as relaxed as possible, but also I'll ask them questions that have nothing to do with work because I'll say to them, say, give me three things about you that has nothing to do with work. And that's one of the first things I'll ask people because the first thing they say will be the first quick thing that comes to their mind, which tells you that provides them comfort. So they say, oh, I have a dog. You're like, okay, tell me about your dog. And the reason we ask those sort of questions is when it's super busy in the clinic and everything's turning to death, <laughs> we don't necessarily need to be talking about you know, what's happening in our business world that day. We might ne necessarily try and bring that person down and talk to them about their hobbies talking about what their goals are, what they've mentioned they're interested in. In an interview space, when you're actually recruiting, it's important to know those little things so that if someone is, say, getting really nervous and you're not getting the best out of them, set them up to win, bring them back to a question you know they're comfortable with, talk to them about the first thing they mentioned, talk to them about the fact that they love growing plants or that they love surfing or whatever it is because you want to make sure that it's a quality interaction. I think gone are the days where we're doing an interview to scare people and where do you see yourself in five years and all those sort of things because David's right, you can just plan and script for that. 
But when you put this much effort into your business and it is your life, you want to make sure you have the right people working with you and that you have the right relationship with them from the start. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I mean, especially now we're living in a world where it's difficult to find anyone to do anything. There's, there's a massive um, shortage of quality people out there who could be potential candidates for your business. And so. Yeah. Um, it's also people you wouldn't necessarily think would be great. And we mm. always talk about, you know, complementary relationships and, you know, maybe it's a silly example, but if you think about when you grow a tomato, right, you can put tomato in the soil and you can look after the soil, but if you plant basil, that basil will then support the tomato in insect repellent, right? So sometimes you need to hire a tomato, sometimes you need to hire us with basil, sometimes you need to mix up because you wouldn't necessarily think those particular people would be great, but they actually provide the ecosystem that allows your business to be successful. So it's not necessarily just looking for people that are like you, that communicate like you or like your bestseller. It might be that you need a completely different person to bring that cultural change. There you go. I'm happy to admit tomato. I didn't know that and I've never grown a tomato. There you go. It's Gardening <laughs> Australia at Insider Sex. Yeah. Yeah. It's all about it. the basil. Are you, are you my basil? I, <laughs> from Faulty Towers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Anyone under the age of 40 doesn't know what we're talking about. Building yeah. um, no. the right team is really important. Having the right people, the right ingredients in the team really yeah. is what defines your business as successfully uh, operating with comfort and ease or maybe it's successfully operating but only for a short time because we're always on edge. Yeah. Um, I remember when I worked in your clinic, David, and I don't know if you set this up or if it was just a routine thing. There was a bit of a, a team briefing, team, yeah. team meeting most mornings, yeah. in fact, every morning. Yeah. You know, I understand the purpose of that, but yeah. what, what do you think's the use of that and when does it become a waste of time? Uh, well, I mean, the use of it is, I guess, everyone to come together once a day and be able to talk about issues because when you're in a, in a busy business, you're going to have things that pop up all the time, like a client issue or a piece of equipment just broke or someone screwed up or this, it's difficult sometimes when you're in a busy environment to get up and talk about, to get together and talk about all the sort of day-to-day issues. So for me, it was just an opportunity to sort of communicate issues that are happening within the clinic, to make people aware of, of things that are an issue um, talk about or celebrate wins or successes for certain people that have done um, great things within the business or had successes. So for me, it was just an opportunity to regroup. And then likewise, if, you know, if things were done badly, it was an opportunity to talk to everyone and say, look, you know, these are the expectations. This is, this is not what we can do moving forward. This needs to change. So it's just a way to start the day off positively. What you, what was your perspective, Cass? Similar or if you yeah, from, I, yeah, I agree. It's definitely, it works in a lot of different styles of business, but I find those team huddles work best in areas of aesthetics as well as hospitality. If you look at um, the majority of people that choose a position in health, in care, in aesthetics or in hospitality, we're social creatures, not necessarily in our private lives, but in our personal, um, I guess, positioning in our careers, we're very vocal. We want to talk to our clients. We want to understand how they feel. And we're the same with our team. So having team meetings, even if it's only two to three minutes, it kind of recenters the team. We're communicating verbally, which we know works quite well with people in our industry, um, but we're also allowing for everyone to kind of be on the same page. And like David said, it's not necessarily just talking about things that aren't going well. It's celebrating the small wins, but also maybe introducing a team goal for the day um, I used to make a lot of bets with my team members <laughs> about what they were able to achieve that day or that week. And I think it's important to, to have a quick chat because 
when you're doing full-time work or even if it's, you know, part-time casual, while you're there, you're completely in at work, ideally, right? But it's kind of nice to remember the people that you work with are human um, and they're going through things and how we need to support them is important. So team huddles, even if it's just to talk about the wins and successes of the day and maybe a goal for everyone is better than just having everyone turn up to work, feel like a bit of a number, complete the treatments and head home. It's also those team meetings help build that relationship and that Mm. culture within your team. Yeah, and and, and it wasn't just for for me as an owner or or a manager to talk about things that were on my mind. It was an opportunity for everyone to talk about frustrations, um, ideas that they have. So you sort of start to foster this collaborative type of team environment and it, it, it sort of, in a way, starts drawing people into your business from rather than just being an employee is someone that's actually is a, has a vested interest in, in the success of the business. And if people feel valued and their voices listened, listened to, and you're happy to listen to their take on their ideas, then it gets more people contributing and, and involved engaging in your business in a positive way rather than just turning up for a paycheck. Yeah. Yeah. And relating this to injectors, I mean, you know, you could sit there with your manager and maybe your therapist and you could just look through your day and be like, okay, this one's uh, been a bit tricky before. Let's just make sure that we, do the right thing mm. from the start, get the notes ready, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, maybe just look at your stock, make sure you've got enough stock, all that kind of stuff. So just, you know, even if it's just a three-minute conversation with your clinic manager and you're an injector, you can just start making your day less less difficult by trying to yeah, anticipate Yeah, we want to be things. responding to our day rather than reacting. Yeah. So we want to look through our day and go, okay, we know this client is going to need a little extra care. Or yeah. perhaps this client needs a little bit more time. Let's shuffle the appointments, etc. Those yeah. things we want to set you up to to succeed. So just like we're talking about in interviews, you want to set that environment for that person to succeed. You also want to be allowing the person that's coming into your business, rather as an employee, as a contractor, as a guest, to ensure that they've got the right environment to thrive as well. And that can literally be just that quick two to three minute check in the morning that just says, "I need this from you for me to be successful today." And as a manager and leader, owner within that business, that's your job to provide that. Yeah, and I quickly learned um, in your clinic, David, that having as injector that relationship with front of house reception mm, yeah. is key because it's their greeting, their language, their yep. whatever that's going to set the tone for once they've come in the room. Yeah, uh, and vice versa. When I when I take them back out, the exit needs to be just as smooth. So yep. yeah, and it's it, you know we're getting back to those friction points. Um, and consistency. You know, you want people who greet your patients to treat them the same way as you would. And so getting everyone on the same page is really important when it comes to the continuity of care and consistency of culture and, and the patient experience. Yeah. Now let's talk about difficult uh-huh. stuff. Yeah. Problems. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> this is Cass's specialty. Um, I mean, I don't know where to start with this. I mean, I don't know if you can give some examples where, you know, maybe you identified it and action some sort of change for the better, but then also, again, where things just didn't go as expected and maybe you just had to say, look, um, this isn't working for you. Yeah, there's been quite a few of those conversations over the half of my life. I've worked in aesthetics. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that everybody has their own story, right? So, yes, absolutely, you will have people in your in your clinic, in your salon, in your business that won't necessarily be a, a personality match for you so it's ensuring that if you are saying this person is under achieving are they underachieving your expectations of being socially appropriate um or are they underachieving in a business sense because sometimes i think it's it's a loop we get into that we must love every single person that we work with that's not necessarily the case it's making sure that you're the right leader for them and they're the right team member for you 
So when we look at people that are underachieving, the why is really important, but also establishing facts over feels. Because again, you're not going to love every single person that you work with. And I'm sure over the 18 odd years that I've worked in aesthetics, there's not going to be people that will be obsessed <laughs> with me personally, but it's making sure that we can communicate and have aligned goals. So when you're managing someone that you say underperforming in how they're speaking with their clients, their consultation, those sort of things, it's usually because they're tired. I honestly believe that the majority of people that get into aesthetics, they get into health care and hospitality. We want to make a positive difference in that person's day, in that person's life. So when that stops, it's important to acknowledge why. So is there something going on in their personal life that they're bringing into work? Is there something that professionally they're having an issue with that just keeps popping up every day? How do we solve that? So once you've done 100% of your job and you've had a chat to that person about what they need from you, if, as long as you're delivering what you've said and committed that you'll do, then it's time to start performance managing that person out. I think sometimes we just rush straight into this person isn't performing, they're the wrong person for us and see you later, but maybe they're our basil. Maybe they're that person that actually when they're firing is supporting the entire team and creating that really good ecosystem for our, our clinic. But if they're the wrong person at the wrong time, then they're out. If they're the right person at the wrong time, then we work things through. Um, and if ideally they're the right person at the right time, they just need a little extra support, then that's our job as well. But there are going to be people that will be uh, immediate achievers that will burn out. There are people that never really get a good start and they aren't suited to the job. And it's having that conversation with them to acknowledge that this may not be the environment that's going to allow them to be as successful as they need to be. You're the wrong employer for them or this is not the right business for you. And that's been quite prevalent in, uh, I guess, the types of therapists that we see in our businesses. Some businesses are very clinical and they're hiring spa staff. If you've got a staff member who loves to do the hour and a half facials, who loves to do a full body massage, they're going to not be well suited to your business if you're doing quick in and out treatments. That's not what motivates them. It's not what makes them feel safe and happy and fulfilled in their job. So looking at what you're providing, who you hired, what you committed to do, are you doing it? And then put that client, sorry, that uh, employee in a position where they can actually talk to you about what they need or move on. Cass is being too fluffy. I want to hear fireworks. I want to hear some real fuck-ups. So ask the question again. <laughs> um, can you tell... Well, let's relate it to injectors because yeah. that's more okay. relevant. I know exactly um, who any, you're talking about. Any yeah. real yep. screw-ups oh. where it got to the point yep. where it was toxic, yep. you had to march them to the, to yeah. the door and say, never come back. Oh, there's been a couple of those. Um, I can think, <laughs> I think about one in particular... Cassandra, um, who was an injector that was in our business for a very long time. And she came on board um, in the very early days of the first clinic. And so she was became quite quickly the primary injector within the business. Um, and she became very successful in a relatively short space of time and was earning ungodly amounts of money. Um, and from our perspective, we didn't identify that there was way too much risk in this business with this person. As they became more successful, they started to take more risks as an injector, started to do things that were slightly questionable, um, not super compliant with things like clinical notes and photography, um, mistreating other people within the team, um, developing this real kind of prima donna mm. um, arrogance um, to them. And, and from our perspective, that was a huge issue because we had allowed this monster um, to to sort of manifest and we hadn't identified that if this person walked, 
and left our business that we would lose 50% of our income overnight because we had become way too reliant on this single person. And by the time that we had realized that she was an issue, we didn't really have any option but to construct a long-term plan to remove her from the business. And it couldn't be done quickly because if she was to go overnight, it would have been catastrophic. Mm. And so we had, you know, she would, you know, click her fingers at staff and throw, you know, money at them to go and buy her lunch. Um, she would, you know, stock would always just mysteriously go missing or disappear or, you know, a syringe had burst and no one had ever, there was, she was just allowed to essentially run her own show. Right. Um, and by the time we had sort of, as I said, realized that she was a problem, we had a really difficult time removing her from the business. It was around about a, a 12 month plan, maybe even a bit longer that we'd identified that she needs to go until we could actually remove her from the business. So it was a process of trying to put in um, protocols and processes that sort of quelled her behavior, you know, curtailed her behavior to a certain level, but then really looking to bring on other people and get them trained up and competent within the business so that when the time came for us to start applying pressure to her, and removing her from the business, the business wouldn't collapse overnight and we had, you know, the ability to provide continuity of care for a patient. And so that was a real learning um, curve for myself and Cassandra because we hadn't really come across this before. And it, it, I think we had different priorities as yeah. a business then too. Yeah. So I think if we had a similar person working with us now, we'd be a lot more comfortable making oh, those decisions sure. faster. Um, and I think that that happens with teams of any size, whether it's yeah. one extra person or a hundred, you develop as well as a leader, as a manager within your business. Mm-hmm. And I think that, yes, you can have people that aren't great for your, your team, but you do need to put situations, uh, I suppose all protocols in place to ensure they don't negatively impact your business whilst managing them out. So yes, Jake, it is a bit of a fluffy answer from my side, <laughs> but I do genuinely believe that you have to get your environment right and your commitment to your team right first before you start demanding a lot of others. Um, and as David said previously, it's about the higher slow, fire fast. And if you can't fire fast, how do I protect my business as comfortably as possible so that when this person exits or their day-to-day influence in the business is not a negative outcome? So if there's some clinic owners or injectors who own businesses and they've got a little team and they, they do identify a problem, maybe not as bad as that, at what point does you know having a little talk or a reminder about a process, a protocol, become formal action and then potentially firing? Like, obviously it depends on, on, on what, what it is, but yeah, can you give some sort of advice to that? Because I think some yeah. people struggle with yeah. rules, basically. They're, they're, yeah. they're, they're scared of either coming on too hot and heavy as being too, you know, domineering as a manager. And actually some people just shy away from it and never confront it. I think shying away and never confronting is really dangerous. It's probably one of the worst things you can do for your business. Yeah. I think there's, we need to stand up and show up, right? So I think that when you have someone who's not working well within your team, whether it be someone who you are relying on 50% of your income, say, or whether they're brand new, it's looking at why. So whenever I have a situation come up with the team member where they're repeatedly doing things that they've been asked not to do or their service level just isn't where we need it to be, it's talking to them about why because they can produce that. Value your, your I guess, decision-making skills as well. You wouldn't have hired this person if you didn't believe they could do it and you've seen them do it, so they can. So what's changed in how the business is running? What's changed in how they're uh, communicating with their team with themselves as well and then working through 
how you manage that person rather out or better. So if you're performance managing someone, it's really important to have identifiable goals. So again, we're in facts, not necessarily feels, and defining what's good. Because just because I think that's great doesn't necessarily mean that you will too. And acknowledging who you are as an owner as well. For me, I've always been an 80% as a past person, not 50%. So for me, I look at it and think, if I've got a lot of people who view success as 50% of past, how do I motivate that person and how do I manage that person? If you have someone that needs to be managed out, I always recommend having a sit down with them and going through the behavioural changes and expectations that are necessary and not necessarily having this as a formal meeting, just as a conversation to say, hey, do you think this is attainable? Do you value this the same way? And to give you an example, we had a staff member who would constantly leave the window uh, in the laser for too long, which is a safety issue. It's an issue for the machine. It's an issue for the clients. And yes, it's not something that's dire and it's going to happen, you know, really poorly, really quickly, but it shows a lack of commitment to the routine, a lack of commitment to the safety and experience of that client and talking them through why they think that that isn't necessarily a priority for them. Mm. And when you break it down like that, it's easier than saying, why aren't you hooking up the laser properly? Why aren't you changing the windows properly? It's why is it important? Is this something that's attainable for you? And do you believe it's something that I can reasonably expect that you'll complete this task the right way next time? I think that's the first conversation you have. I'm going to ask David. Then you start managing it. (laughs) Why does being time poor, why don't you value it? Why are you always late? What do you mean, time poor? Oh, right. <laughs> For the you know, podcast. No, my problem is I commit to too many things. Right. My problem is I, I overestimate my abilities and underestimate how long things take. And, and I don't like to say no to people. So I'll commit to the, I'll do this, I can do that, I'll do this by this time. And then I just, I don't have enough hours in my life to do all the things that I want. Even though I don't have a formal job at the moment, I yeah. still don't seem to have enough hours to do all the things I wanted. And that's just part of my... ADD brain, I think, that I just try and do too many things. I've yeah. got too many things on it. I, I managed to find myself being busy doing nothing. Is it, was he always <laughs> late with you, Cass, for meetings and things? Um, I think you kind of just you learn how to work with people. Right? So, <laughs> so just <laughs> tell him it's him like <laughs> half an hour earlier and then expect to be half an hour later. Well, like I too suffer with that as well. So it's it's quite funny that Dave and I are very really late for each other because we both struggle with this. But I do know that if I said to David, David, it's really important to me that you're here at three, I really need you to spot me at three o'clock today. I know he'd be there at three. Yeah. If you have a casual conversation with Dave and you go, yeah, we'll grab a coffee after work, uh, that might be an hour later. It might be five minutes later. Who knows? Okay. But I haven't defined I have the time. Something. So just like managing our staff members. <laughs> It's also managing David, define what good looks like, right? Good looks like you turn up at three and you turn up at three. It's defining what you need. I there think. we go. And some people just need a little bit more structure. There you go. Cass is going to have some sessions with Jake on how to manage Dave. Yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> I will speak after Cass. Um, here's a question. I'm probably going to throw myself under the bus on this one. Did you guys have any particular challenges managing doctors or nurses? Well, that was what the one I just told you about. Was that I mean, she happens to be a nurse, but like, is there anything about the profession or indeed doctors specifically that make them difficult? Uh, I'll get you guys. Well, I've got, got some ideas. God, God complex. <laughs> yeah. um, we've had a few doctors on our team. Um, and, and one thing that I've never worked out how to say this properly in a way that doesn't offend everyone. So I don't know why I'm, I'm saying this on inside aesthetics because please. No one's listening. Me. It's fine. Just <laughs> but if you're doing the same job as someone that you see is lower than you, you are the same. Yes. 
So one thing I found very interesting in working with doctors is there's an assumption that the doctor is above the nurse mm-hmm. and the nurse is above, above the skin therapist and the skin therapist is above the receptionist and there's this weird hierarchy. Yeah. There is none. If you're doing the same job as someone who is a nurse, then you are the same level. The qualification for injectors for the most part is exactly the same, whether you are a nurse that has finished university yesterday or whether you are someone that has worked in the industry for 50 years it makes no difference. Yep. So when we talk about, you know, managing doctors and nurses or doctors versus nurses or doctors versus team, it's just acknowledging that everyone's on the same team. Everyone's got the same goals. Everybody has the same responsibilities really at the end of the day. And yes, your position in the clinic may come with a little bit more risk, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's worth more in the scheme of the culture of the team. Yep. We don't want a situation where you've got people feeling lesser because we are a team and in that team, we are all the same. Yeah. I actually made a particular point, and I, and I still do this, of, of when people want to call me Dr. Jake as like a team member, I'm like, I'm just Jake. Yeah. I'm not, I yeah. mean, I might yeah. be Dr. Jake, but you don't need to call me Dr. Jake. There is no ranking here. Does your wife yeah. call you Dr. Jake? No, <laughs> definitely doesn't. I don't think she believes I'm a doctor. But I think it's important to work together, right? Like yeah. whether you are a doctor that's worked in industry for a hundred years or whether you've just started, you've got the same experience as someone who's just started injecting too. Yeah. So there is no necessarily hierarchy, but I, I will say that um, in my experience in hiring the stereotypical injector doctor versus stereotypical uh, beauty therapist, the fluff in me comes out more with working with people in the aesthetic space, whereas doctors, even in a cosmetic uh, injectable position, do require the point shoot kill information. They're the dot point email people for the most part. Whereas if I'm communicating the same information to a group of skin therapists, uh, it may be a little bit more, you know, yeah. upbeat. And and just to sort of um, pick up on what Cass was saying around everyone on the team being equal, I, I, th- I look at it as a, like a massive machine. And everyone in that machine or every component of that machine needs to work in harmony with everything else. Otherwise, the machine doesn't work. And so if you have someone on the team that thinks they're above certain things or treats people disrespectfully, um, it causes the rest of the machine to break down. And if someone, like if the front of house receptionist is not doing their job properly and they're not answering the phone or they're not being nice to patients when they walk in and making sure the forms are signed and all those kinds of things, the whole thing falls apart. So that person is is just as integral in the process as the person performing the treatment. That's not to un- under undermine the training and the skill that, say, a doctor has, but it's just about treating everyone with an equal level of respect and and valuing everyone's contributions to the business because that don't pe- people don't like to feel less than. And if there's someone that's putting themselves yeah. out as more important than everyone else and it starts to create a toxic culture within the business. Definitely. I always found it interesting. Um, it, would, it was years ago now, probably would have been about 2014. I remember a staff member taking a mop out of my hand and she forcefully removed it from me and she goes, no, 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 you don't do this. You own the business. And I thought, how ludicrous, how ludicrous that I own the business. So you're expecting me not to be someone that's helping with you, uh, helping your end of day cleaning. Like that's the first thing I should be doing. Like, yes, you could argue that there are more important things I can be doing and working on the business. But to a certain extent too, you need to remember that as the owner, you are part of the team too, and you are successful because your team is successful. So sometimes that support might be looking at, you know, having a coffee with that person and mentoring their career, but sometimes it is picking up the mop, right? Regardless of who you are. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, People need to feel that you are willing to do what it is that you're expecting them to do. And so it doesn't mean you have to pick up the mop every day, but if, if it needs doing, then you're not above doing their task. It's almost like you're part of the team. You're in the trenches with these people to mm. a certain extent and leading by example. And so I think that whilst, as Cassie, you might not do it every day, 
Um, yeah, a lot of people need to like really benefit from that sense of camaraderie. And if if you are the owner who's prepared to pick up a mop and you know get rid of some vomit that some someone's child's done all over your over your tiles, <laughs> for example, it says a lot to your team. It says a, a lot how, about how much you care about the business mm. and that you you don't see what they do as beneath you. So it it, it just as much permeates mm-hmm. from the owner as it does from what I was talking about with an injector. Whereas everyone needs to feel equally as valued in the business. And if you're prepared to do their roles. Not all the time, yeah. but from time to time, I think that goes a long way in developing the right culture and respect level. Yeah. If you're in a position too where you are, say, the injector or you are a lead skin therapist, et cetera, et cetera, you're relying on that front house team to provide the first point of contact for that client. So let's say, you know, that you've got a great relationship with that, that front desk team and they know exactly what you need from them and they know exactly what needs to happen. Your client experience is so much better because of the relationship you have with those team members. So if you're just someone who comes in as a contractor, does the work and leaves, you're never building a relationship, which means you're not building your referrals because we do know that, you know, the best relationship is within skin and injectables. Um, you're also not building the right experience for your referrer friend. So if you've got someone who's had a great experience in your clinic, in your space, they're eight times more likely to make a referral within eight hours than what they would be if they didn't have a great experience. So I think that when we talk about, you know, you've got to pick up the mop. Yes, it's not every day, but what is that mop? So is the mop, I'm the person at the front desk answering calls because I'm supporting the front desk team. Is the mop, I'm the person making sure that they're restocked after that massive client. Is the mop the person who's, you know, assisting with an LED treatment before their appointment to save some time because the injector is running late. What is the mop? The mop is teamwork, regardless of what position you hold. Yeah. And I think that you can can pay people however much money per hour to turn up and do a job and you can set them expectations and and they'll do that job. But it's that extra sort of little spark, that extra little 5% that only comes when someone genuinely loves what they do and genuinely loves or respects the people that they're working for. And you just can't get that out of someone, no matter how much you prod and poke them or, or wave incentives or money in front of them. You can't, you can't get that X factor. And so mm-hmm. if people respect you, they love your business and people only will feel that way if you feel that way about them or they think that you feel that way about them. Mm. And so does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. And, and you're, it's not really an X factor, so obvious, but so many owners don't do this. You really understood mm. my job as an injector. Yeah. You'd had treatments. You, yeah. you, you wrote a book on yeah. treatments. Um, you know, you're kind of highly unusual, but by doing all of that, you understood what I needed. Yeah. And my conversations with you were just so much easier because you got it. Yeah. Now, if I have d- someone moaning about something, you're like, oh, yeah, I've seen this a hundred times before. This is what we do. Yeah. And, and, it, and, and, you know, Cass can talk to this as well. I mean, I, I didn't gather all that knowledge and I know Cass, Cass didn't gather all that knowledge with that intention. It's just when you're passionate about it, industry, you want to know everything about your business and you, and you educate yourself. So I think, A, it does, it builds a level of respect because you're able to communicate with that injector on, a, on their level to a certain extent um, and that you've gone to the trouble to understand their role. And I think that that sort of earns you some points as well. And also from a management perspective, it, it's sort of, in some ways, it makes it more difficult for them to sort of pull the wool over your eyes as well with certain things. So as a, yeah. biz- as, a, as a business owner, I think you need to be acutely aware of everything that goes on. And if you don't understand, you know, how to count stock or like what a reasonable reasonable outcome is or what compliance looks like, 
people potentially will take advantage of that or not do their job 100% because there's no one actually who's in a position to be able to pull them up yeah. on it. Yeah. What do you think, Cass, from, from yeah, your perspective? I think so. I think in the beginning when I first started in aesthetics, there was no um, – it wasn't a quarter as popular as it is. So there wasn't too much involvement on my part, which is something that I do regret. I think if I was to do my time again, I'd spend more time – learning about the people that are working with me and the jobs that they're doing and the services they're providing. Because I think it took me a couple of years to really look at that as a priority. Um, for me, I think it's really important that you understand what people are going through in their day-to-day job because your job as that owner is to provide that environment that's going to allow them to be successful. So if you don't know what they need, they can't ever fulfil their potential. So it's also there's nothing more fatiguing than explaining a problem 50 times over to someone who just doesn't have the ability to understand it. And when that person who doesn't have the ability to understand it is your boss or your coworker, that's really disappointing and it gets very fatiguing very quickly and you see that bond drop and drop and drop because they're consistently saying something to you that you don't understand the priority or you don't understand how to fix it the way they need it to be done in the level of urgency they've asked for. So for me, it was also really important to protect my business as well in that the clients that were coming through that were having, say, an adverse event may not necessarily be coming in on the day that that same ejector is working. So you need to be able to pick that up, understand what's happening, create the right environment for them to be okay and speak with the people that you need to. And that comes from having a base of knowledge and a respect for the people that you work with to at least try and understand a little bit of what they go through each day. I thought that was a fantastic podcast. Oh, thank you. It was good. (laughs) Thank you, Cass. It was great. Um, What are your plans over Christmas, Cass? What are you going to be up to? I'm going to Vanuatu. Yeah, so it'll be nice. Very nice. Have you been before? Never. I've never been to Vanuatu before, so I'm doing – it's my first Christmas not in, uh, I guess, Australia too. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, we were a slave to the business because Christmas is busy, so – Quite this is my sp- first Christmas off in 18 years. Oh I'm not gosh. joking. Really? Wow. <laughs> my phone is going to be off. <laughs> yeah, wow. Um, and just to point out, Cassandra works with me on, on the consulting work that I'm doing quite often. Um, I'll talk to um, – clients who would benefit more from Cassandra's skill set. So she's, she's part of part of the team. So um, now everyone's, well, a lot of people will be familiar with her already, but for those that are new to the podcast, um, now you know. Well, how do they, how does that process work? How do they get in touch? Do they have to be a patron? Yes, they have to be. <laughs> See how I weave that in? Yeah, just weave that in. Well, we just, I mean, the reason we say to take part in the consulting that I'm doing and Cassandra's part of as well is that, you know, the, the, what we offer as, as, as the IA team is um, significant in terms of, um, sorry, I've got something caught in my throat. <laughs> I think it's important to acknowledge too that we've, Dave and I learned similarly we learn by doing, right? So the idea of setting up a consultancy business together is one, to deliberately actually work together rather than accidentally and work it out. Now we understand how we need to work, how we need to communicate and what sort of goals that we have as a team. But I think what's most important about why this works is just as we were able to capitalise on our working relationship for our business, we're now able to step out of our businesses and work on yours. So it's allowing you to have someone to look into your business, look into your goals and what you want to achieve, but also have a team behind you that have those areas that you may not necessarily be super strong in. So you've got that backup straight away. So it's having someone, I guess, that's strategically placed to help you with whatever goals that you have, but also just someone to stop you having to be the person that blows up the laser because we can tell you not to in the beginning. I was going to say, so before David had his coughing attack, um, I think what you're trying to say is – Whilst you guys work together on yep. a business consultancy sort of outside yep. of IA, 
I guess the connecting day to day sort of um, yeah. support is through IA and well, our Patreon system. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, now that we've started to do business sort of live Zooms and you're going to be coming online with clinical clinical care as well, we see it as um, supporting us, supporting the podcast. And also if you are serious about improving your, your clinical practice or are serious about improving the way that you manage and learn how business works, is that we are providing a lot of that information through what we're doing on on um, through our Patreon group. So it makes sense that if you are interested in those things that you do join the group because there is a lot of additional information and value that you get from being part of that. Yeah. So guys, if you are interested, just go to World Wide Web Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com yep. forward slash insider aesthetics. You can join up there. And then from then on, you kind of get into this ecosystem and yeah. then we'll eventually put you on to David and Cass. And Jake. Well, eventually, yes. <laughs> When's that happening, by the way? I don't know. Early 2023. Let's just leave it as vague okay. as that for now. It, right. it probably won't be January, to be honest. Okay. Well, fair enough. Yes. You deserve a holiday, yeah. I guess. So thank you, Cass. Thank you for your no sage-like knowledge. Uh, it's always good to talk. Um, are you going to be in Sydney at any point over Christmas? No, she's going to I'll come up and say hi. All right. Well, yeah, we'll but, but you can come and say hi between Vanuatu trips. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you so <laughs> much. Take care. Thank you. Bye. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. Using the link in our Instagram profile, you can easily email us, text us, apply to be a guest on the show, follow our personal accounts on Instagram, and even show your love and support us on Patreon. 